And if you understand that he hung there in your place, and if you understand that he took on himself the wrath that was reserved for you and for me, Amen. and if you understand that it is by his grace alone, and we know that grace because it is real and effective, if you understand that, all you can say is, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Only a believer can say that. Only someone who's been touched by the power and the Spirit of God can sing that chorus. Only someone who's been changed by the work of Christ through the cross by his blood, who knows what it means to be what Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again, given newness of life, can really say that and mean it. It's sort of like what Paul said to the Corinthian Christians when he said, you know, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, a lot of people can say Jesus is Lord. I've seen drunks at football games say, praise the Lord, and they were speaking by a spirit but not the Spirit. But only when the Spirit of God really energizes your heart can you say, Jesus is Lord. And only when the Spirit of God has energized your life can you say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. I don't know about you, but that, that song is a sermon for me. That song is a worship experience for me. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Hebrews. And I was easy to put my sermon in the bulletin this week because I just went back to last week and wrote part two on the end of it because I didn't get through last week. And I have so much time today, but I will get through the, today. We won't be a part three on this one, I don't think. Although this is a very important and very touchy passage for a lot of people as they look at it and think through it. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning verse 11. Now we've covered verses 11 through 6, 4, 6, 3, I think fairly well, but I want to review it a little bit, so we'll go back and read the entire passage. Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 8. Hear the word of God. Concerning him, that is Jesus, who is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You're not ready to hear this, he said, because you become lazy, you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elemental or elementary teaching about Christ, 
Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who once have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It is Im- If they fall away, if they can lose their salvation, the writer says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That is, it's impossible for them to be saved again. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it brings forth vegetation useful for those uh, for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. This is the word of God. Now last week we talked about two of the problems somewhat in depth that the writer is dealing with. He first of all starts out by talking about in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5 the problem of ignorance. Now again, ignorance not as a derisive term but ignorance as a, as a stated fact. They were ignorant of the things of God. They had become dull of hearing, sluggish and slothful. So the writer is convinced that their ignorance stems from laziness. Secondly, he observed that their ignorance has led them to ineffectiveness. And in verse 12, he said they ought to be teachers, but they're not effective. They're not even teachers. They need to be taught again. They are ones who have been professing believers for a long time, but yet they're just remaining in an immature state. And he says, we need to press on from this. We need to get beyond this. You as a believer need to be growing in Christ in such a way that you are teaching other people. Don't be satisfied. Don't be lazy in your relationship with Christ. Too often we are. Too often we think that that recreational activities and sports and, and our jobs and all sorts of other things are more important than our walk with Christ. And we say, we'll get around to it later, but we never do. And we, we are a professing Christian for years and years and years, and we're still just babies. We're in need of milk. We, we can't take the solid food of the Word. Or else we are people who have grown to a point of of maybe feasting on some of the word, and now he says, you've dropped back, you've, you've moved backwards, you've, you've dematured, if you will, if that's a word, which it's probably not, but sounds good. You, you become less than what you were. You know, when, when we have that happen in our physical lives, don't we? We've seen, maybe our parents, saw my parents, both of them, be robust and, and vibrant and, and able to take in uh, steak and potatoes and all that kind of good stuff. And then I saw a time in their life where all they could handle was insure. But they didn't do that because they wanted it that way. They did that because they became very ill. They were sick. They were, at that point, even dying. 
And, and the writer here is saying, listen, if you're sitting around as a believer, someone who's professed Christ for years and years, and you at one time participated in Bible study, loved the Word of God, sought the worship of God, and now you've dropped back to where you can be content to just sit with no real meat and just take a little milk every now and then, then the problem is you have become lazy and you have become sick because of that. Spiritually ill. Spiritually sick. And he says, this is no way for you to be. But this ignorance causes carelessness, results in carelessness, and, and they, they cry like little babies when they ought to be feasting on the word of God. They cry for milk like infants when they ought to be tasting and eating and devouring the truth of God. So there was the problem of ignorance. Then there was the problem of immaturity that we talked about. And in 5.12, he makes it clear, we must press on. We need to get on with this. In verse, six, verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, therefore leaving the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, by that he doesn't mean forget it. It's no longer important. But he's saying quit dwelling there. Leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not trying to lay again a foundation that you had at one time. He goes through these six things of the elementary preaching or teaching of, of Christian truth, the repentance from dead works, faith in God, baptism or, or washings and laying of hand, on of hands, resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. All of those which probably have been brought out of the, the concept of Judaism from which all these people came out of and have been applied to Christian truth and became something of a catechism, something of a basic teaching for new believers in this church that this writer is writing to. And of course we know that repentance from dead works is important. We know that faith in God is important. It's not just repentance from, but also faith towards. We understand that. Paul said to the, to the, to the uh, Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, when he said, you know, I have solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was his message. You must repent of your sins against God and turn away from those repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in his finished work on the cross. That is absolutely important. And that's an elemental teaching. That's an elementary teaching. Something you know from the very beginning. But you don't just dwell there. You might teach that to other people. But you're learning more. You're learning deeper. You're understanding the things of God even more. So there was the problem of, uh, of ignorance. And there was the problem of immaturity. And then he comes in verses 4 through 8 to the problem of apostasy. The problem of walking away. The problem of turning their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ and on Christianity and upon the faith. These verses are tough. I don't want to downplay that, but I don't think they're impossible to understand. And I don't think they're inconsistent with the eternal security of the believer. I don't think they're inconsistent with the fact that if you are in Christ, as Peter said, you are kept by the power of God. I don't think they're inconsistent with the fact that as Jesus said, if you have trusted me and you really believe in me, then you are in my hand and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And if you're really a believer in me, you are in the Father's hand and my Father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch you out of my Father's hands. I think that's basic understanding of what Christ taught and what Paul taught and what the scripture teaches and I think what the writer of the Hebrews believes. 
And I think we'll see that later on in this book. That he truly believes that if a person is in Christ, they are secure. If a person is in Christ, they are with Christ forever. It's not temporal salvation, it's eternal salvation. It's not temporal life, it is eternal life. And that is significant to understand and not to miss. So why does he talk here about, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and also the powers of the age to come, how about them falling away? Well, I think, first of all, you have to see what he's not saying to understand what he's saying. Nowhere in there does the writer explicitly say that those who have been saved fall away. Yes, we understand that he says they've been enlightened, They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, uh, I don't know what the heavenly gift is necessarily there, but it's probably Christ. The, he- the Holy Spirit is many times spoken of as the heavenly gift, but the Holy Spirit's the next statement. So probably he's talking about Christ there, this heavenly gift of the coming of Christ, have been enlightened in relation to the heavenly gift. They've, they've tasted of it. But you know, John said in John chapter 1, he said Jesus is the light of the world and he comes into the world and he enlightens every man. And the word there is anthropos, which means every man and every woman, every human being. But we know for a fact that, that John is not teaching there in, in making that statement about Jesus that every human being is now saved and will be in heaven with God. They have been enlightened. They have seen the presence of Christ especially there in Palestine, the ones that I think John was thinking about at that point. He walked through Palestine. He walked through Jerusalem. People saw him. They saw him do great miracles. They saw him heal the blind. They saw him feed 5,000. They saw him raise the dead. They saw unbelievable things about Christ, and they were enlightened to the fact that this was a, a, a unique manifestation of God's presence among them. They were enlightened by the presence of Christ, but they did not all believe. So we see clearly in Scripture that there are those who can be enlightened and yet not have salvation. There can be those who have been enlightened, because he said every man is enlightened, but we know that every man doesn't believe, and yet they not believe, and so they not have eternal life. He talks about they have tasted tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come. I think it's significant. Maybe you don't think it is, but I think it's significant. They don't say that they have drank. Is, that right? is it drank or drunk? Drunk. Thank you. I meant to ask you that before the service so I wouldn't make a grammatical error since I never make those. It doesn't say they have drunk of the heavenly gift or drunk of the pure word of God. Jesus said to the woman of the well, said, you know, uh, when she said, when he asked her for water and they talked about it a little bit, and, and he said, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. Water that you could drink of, and if you drink of that water, if you really take that water in, if that is a, if that is a part of your life and it becomes a fountain of living water, then you'll never thirst again. You'll, you'll never die is what he's saying. You'll never have any spiritual, you will be right with God if you drink of that water. But it didn't say if you just take a sip of it. If you just taste of it. These are probably men and women who have come into the church. They have had an emotional encounter. They have had an intellectual encounter. They have stated facts that they believe to be true. But they have never had a regenerative relationship 
with Jesus Christ. They're the ones that John talked about in 1 John when they were mulling over that question. Why are people leaving? Why are people that were in leadership positions leaving our church? Why are they not staying with us? Why are they turning their back on the faith? Why are they abandoning Christ and going out into the world? And John said they have left us because they never really were of us. They were among us. They lived with us. They even appeared to be a part of the church. But they're leaving, they're departing, their abandonment proves that they never really were one of us. There are a lot of people who sit through church services week after week. In some cases, they sit and never hear the gospel, so they don't have a chance to respond to it. There are others who sit through it in just sort of a lazy, lackadaisical way, and it never affects their life. I remember reading years ago, I got this book, I think, in about 1971. I think somebody gave it to me, but it's, it's by a guy named John Warwick Montgomery. And the title of the, the book is, and if your children are here, parents, you can explain to them later why the pastor's not cursing, okay? Well, but the title of the book is Damned Through the Church. Now, uh, Montgomery, John Montgomery Warwick said, uh, John Warwick Montgomery said he wanted to name it, uh, he tells in the preface, he wanted to name it Going to Hell Through the Church, but the publisher thought that was a little too drastic. But in the in his first chapter, the question is, why do people go to church? Why do people go to church? And he, he uses an article here that was written by Stanley High. It was published in the Saturday Evening Post. Now, you've got to be about my age or older to know what the Saturday Evening Post is because it died years ago. But later on, Reader's Digest thought it was so good that they ran it twice in a condensed version. And the title of it was, Why I Go to Church. Stanley High writes this. He said, I've sat in my quota of hard pews, heard my share of volunteer choirs, and listened to enough uninspired and uninspiring sermons to last a lifetime. But I still go to church. I go to church at the end of the street in the little town where I live. I was raised a Methodist and at one time was a Congregationalist. The church at the end of the street happens to be a Presbyterian. My wife belongs to the guild. We both like the preacher. It is convenient but it lays no claim to special distinction. We have good music, but it's no better than the Sunday morning music I could get on the radio. The preacher is better than average, but his renown is pretty much limited to our town. My church, in short, is like 10,000 other small-town churches with no more to offer and no less, but I enjoy it. I feel that I have missed something when I do not go. I grant that habit may be something, have something to do with it, my Methodist parents laid great store by church going, and so as a boy did I. It would be difficult to shake the influence of that early training. About half past ten on Sunday mornings, the old youth-bred inclination lays hold of me. If I stay home, I do it in the face of internal protest. I suppose if I stayed home often enough, I would get over that feeling, but, but I generally go. I go to the church for the same reason I go to the theater because I get something out of it. What I get is different, but it's something that I want, and I've not found any other place where I can get it. For one thing, at church, I generally get some perspective, often not as much as I would like, but always a little. That little is more than I can be sure of getting anywhere else, 
And I'm glad to have it. The rest of the week, I am uh, addicted to all those devices by which the average American is led to believe that a thing is important only if it is recent. Now, this was before Twitter and Facebook and the Internet and all that even. That the biggest news is ipso facto the latest news. I read several daily papers. I listen to the news flashes on the radio and television. And every week, I buy three news magazines. Then on Sunday, I go to church. We sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Some form of doxology has been sung by men and women at worship for at least 21 centuries. The hymns do not go back that far, but they go back far enough to be out of the running for the radio's song hits of the week. I sang them on Sunday mornings when I was a boy. My father and mother sang them and their parents before them. I like them far more, uh, I like them far more than their age, but I do like them for that. The minister reads the Old Testament lesson, then goes back further than either of the, that goes back further than either of the hymns or the doxology. It may go back 30 centuries, a thousand years before Christ. He reads the New Testament lesson, preferably in the King James Version. This was 1970. Uh, there is nothing new enough in what he reads to make the headlines. I heard the same passages in my youth. Men and women not very different from those in our church have heard them generation before generation in the past. My children and their children will hear them generations into the future. They are, they are more to me than a bridge to the past or the future, but they are that. I'm almost done. And, for more, and, and before the preacher begins his sermon, I find that I become consciously aware of something which the rest of the week is no more than a hunch. I realize that people like myself with problems like mine have been here a long time. That yesterday's newspapers did not say the first word and tomorrow's newspapers will not say the final word on anything. I know that tomorrow is another day, but I can say to myself, why so hurried, my little man? That is what I mean by perspective. At least I, I, I get that, a few minutes of it at least, when I go to church. And that is more than I get anywhere else I go. He goes on and talks about a few other things. But in the final analysis, he says, the thi this is the last paragraph, the things I get from my church are not offered anywhere else. And I have been going long enough to be sure in my own mind that I get along better with those things, with those things than without them. Now he gives his reasons for going. He says basically five reasons. He likes the preacher. That's always a plus from my perspective. He likes the preacher. Second, he finds it convenient. Third, habit impels him. Fourth, he gets something out of it, specifically historical perspective, relevance for a person that is bigger than we are, and morality. And fifth, he gets along better as a result of church going. Now, if you look at those things closely, when you really look at them closely, we find that every one of them is self-centered not God-centered. Every one of them is about me. Every one of them is about what I can get and feel a little bit better and go out of here, and that's all I'm really after. That's kind of where I think a lot of people were in the early church that this writer is writing to. They, they did find something new. They found something exciting. There was a little bit of danger involved because they had to hide out many times to do it. There was not the openness that we have in our churches today. And there was a little bit of adventure, a little bit of danger, and there was a new message, and they heard that message, and somewhere in their mind, they made a mental, mental ascent 
to that message, but it never changed their heart. It never changed their lives. They never came to that point that we would call the point of conversion where they fully trusted Christ, wholly trusted Christ, completely trusted Christ, and he was their Lord. They never came to the point where they could sing, Hallelujah, Christ is all I have. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. I think the writer here, I love that he says, and we'll talk about this next week more fully, but in verse 9 of chapter 6, he said, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. He's not looking at them saying, Listen, you're all, gonna, you're all a bunch of lost pagans. You need to get your act together. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying you're in danger if you don't take this matter of Jesus Christ and this matter of Christianity and this matter of the truth of God's word. If you don't take any of that seriously and see that that is at the center of your life and the most important things you do, if you don't see that, then you're in real danger. You're in desperate danger. You're in danger of falling away. You're in danger of missing out on what he says here, the uh, despising God's gifts and rejecting God's son and, and forfeiting God's blessing. I mean, th there's danger involved in that unless you see the seriousness of what we're talking about. Now, I believe in saying that if one falls away, he can't be restored to repentance. He is saying that you can't, come to, you can't be saved. Now, most of those who believe you can lose your salvation don't look at that verse. They don't believe that because they believe a person's saved and then they lose it and then they can get saved the next week. And I've, I've told you about people I've counseled with before who've come forward making a profession of faith and I've said, now, uh, this is your first profession of faith. Oh, no, I've, I've been saved 17 times. No, you haven't. Not, not saved in the biblical sense, not, not regenerate in the sense of being made into a new creature, not be in the sense of being born again. You didn't get unborn if you were born. Just like there's no way for you to decide tomorrow, I think I'll just be unborn. I'm mad, I'm mad at my mother. She birthed me, and I don't want to be birthed. I'm just going to be unborn. You, you can't do that. The same is true of Christianity. This is not a matter of what I want. It's not a matter of what Stanley High talks about in his article about I just like it because it's habit and I get something out of it. I get a little perspective and, and I feel better by going. It's not that at all. It's about coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about having an intimate relationship with him. It's about having his spirit literally invade your life, as Jonathan Edwards talked about. He used a word that I won't use because it's a little too, too uh, I don't know, uh, prickly for our day, I suppose. But he talked about God invading your life by his Holy Spirit and wrapping his arms around you and drawing you to himself and then tenaciously and without any hesitation holding on to you and never letting you go if you belong to him. If you could break it. If you could somehow slip out and run away. If you could break the covenant relationship that God has made with you in Christ through his son's blood on the basis of grace through faith. Then the writer says, you have, you have trampled on Christ. You have placed him at open shame. You have crucified 
him to yourselves again. Now, I think the historical perspective, if you're looking at, at these particular people that are being written to, they're in, they're in danger of, of moving back into the blood sacrifices of animals. And he is saying to them, listen, the blood sacrifice has been offered. Christ has shed his blood, the perfect Lamb of God, for all time for those who believe. And to say, well, you know, I'm just not sure. I think I'll go back to the, to the lambs and the doves and the bulls and, and all of those things and shed their blood just to be on the safe side. I, I think I'll go back to what I'm comfortable with. He said to do that, you bring open shame to Christ and you crucify him to yourselves all over again. It's like putting him on the cross again by your sin, by your rejecting of him. And Jesus doesn't go to the cross again, folks. Just doesn't do it. And so he says, if you do that, if you can do that, and I think he's warning here to the people. I don't think this is a, an idle warning. I think he's seriously saying, listen, you consider the goodness of God. You consider the truth of his word. You consider the sacrifice of Christ. You think about that. You meditate on that. You put your trust in that completely. Because that's where your hope is. And if you could be in it and get out of it, you can't be restored again. There's no hope. Now, I can read your minds. You're sitting there thinking about, well, what about old so-and-so? Or what about a loved one? They once were involved in church. They once were, they once were active. They once, oh, they once witnessed for Christ. They once went on mission trips. They... They, they read their Bible every day. They, they tried to tell me how important Christ was. And now this person that I love dearly has turned their back on Christ and turned their back on everything Christ stands for. And they even, they even say vile things about Christ. They even use bad language toward Christ. What do, I, what do I make of that person? Well, if you take a false doctrine of once saved, always saved, you would say, well, it's okay, he's all right because, you know, he was once saved and, and he's in Christ and so he's okay. And you would be absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Or you could look at it the way John does. Yeah, he looked like he was there. He said all the right things. He did all the right things. But it was all about what he did, not about what Christ did, not about what God did through Christ in his or her life. It was all like, like Stanley High. I, it felt good. People liked me and, and, and people respected me more when I did it and they responded to me better and, and I just kind of liked the attention and so I did that. I've known preachers who have stood in the pulpit because they like to hear themselves talk and they like for other people to sit there and listen to them. They would have been a great politician, but they couldn't get into that. And then they turned from the faith. But they were great preachers, much better preachers than me, than I am. But the test is not in how you began. The test is not in how good you look at the beginning. The thing the writer here wants to understand is the real test is how do you finish? How do you finish? Paul said at the end of his life to say, in 2 Timothy, young Timothy said, I have run the race. 
I have finished the course. And I've done it with grace and humility and trust in Christ. And I know in whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul said, I've run the race. I've finished the course. Because he was not an intellectual Jesus to me. He was not a religious Jesus to me. He was my Lord. He was my Savior. I put my trust in him alone. Not in him plus my good works. Not in him plus what I could do to add to it. I put my trust in him alone who saves sinners. Paul unfolds it all through the book of Romans. That is Christ's work applied by the Holy Spirit, planned and purposed by God the Father, that brings about your salvation. Paul said in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It's not of works, so nobody can boast. What I did for Jesus, he saved me because of what I did. No, can't boast in that. Paul said to the Galatians, if you must boast, boast only in the cross of Christ. If you must boast, boast only in your weakness because in your weakness, his strength is made evident. So what is the writer here doing? He's warning. He's challenging. He's saying if you've been lazy and if you're, if you're ignorant of the true things of God, if you're, if you're ineffective because of what, ineffective because of that laziness and that ignorance, then you're in danger of maybe turning your back and walking away and missing out on the blessings of God. Verse 7 and 8, he said, and he talks there about how this happens. And he uses a parable, an illustration. I, I, don't, I just want to give it to you. I don't have time to really unpack it. But he said, For the ground that drinks rain, which often falls on it, that is the earth, the rain falls. We, we've had a lot of rain lately, and, and it, it fell at least one weekend, fell everywhere. And, and some of you have planted gardens, and you are so glad to see it because now your, uh, your okra, and tomatoes, my two favorites, by the way, are, are now growing. And you can see that, and it's great. That rain just gave blessing to that. But if you look around, everything didn't grow up good. I look at my neighbor's yard, and I see a lot of yellow dandelions that are coming up because of the rain. That's not good. But the rain nourishes, the rain enlightens, if you will, everything. But it's not all good that grows up out of it. And that's what he's saying here. It brings forth vegetation that's useful for those whose sake it is also tilled and it receives a blessing for God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, that is if the same enlightenment, if the same 
vision of the truth is presented and, and yet it only produces thorns and thistles, then it's worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Jesus said it'd be wheat and tares that would grow up together. And it's hard to tell them apart, but in the last day, he would separate the wheat from the tares. And the wheat would be harvested, and the tares would be burned. The writer here is just saying, listen, pay close attention to your soul. Pay close attention to what Christ has or has not done in you. Is it just a religious activity? Is it just a habit? Or you come here that you might lift your hearts and lift your hands and lift your, your voices in worship and say hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Hallelujah, Christ is all I have. Because it's all of him. And it's all of grace. And it's all of his power. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, desiring, O oh Lord, to hear your voice in your word. Father, perhaps your call is to some of us who have remained in ignorance and some of us who have remained in ineffectiveness and immaturity as babies when we ought to be mature believers as needing to be taught when we ought to be teachers. Father, we pray this day that your Holy Spirit will take your word and apply it. Father, it is in Christ alone. It is the truth that all I have is Christ and Jesus is my life. Teach us that, Lord. Father, let us live in it. Father, I pray you work in men and women's hearts and young people's hearts right now to show them your truth and to draw them to yourself. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing our hymn of commitment, speak, O Lord.